Hey guys, sorry, Delamot here. This is a recent Facebook Live that we've uploaded as a podcast. Enjoy. When you're up against a hostile room of people who don't want to be there, you need real strategies that get results. Welcome to From Hostage to Hero, the show that gives you practical advice you can use right now in the courtroom, boardroom, or classroom. Learn how to move your unwilling audience to one that is invested in what you're saying, eager to participate, and engaged in the process. Learn from the attorney whisperer herself, your host, Sari Delamont. Welcome, those of you who are now coming into the room uh, here in Zoom, and welcome to those of you in the From Hostage to Hero Facebook group. We are here with John Bailey from Midland, Texas. Are you, you're in Midland, right? I'm in San Angelo, but close, close enough. San Angelo. Yeah. Okay, I'm thinking Midland because when we yeah, because we worked there, we worked there. So San Angelo, Texas, and we're talking to him today about his monster 120 million dollar win in a wrongful death case. Welcome, John Bailey. So um, I have to tell the group because y'all, if you're following me and you and you listen to the podcast. You know that I have one case that is like my favorite case, and it is the Dram Shop case. And John Bailey was one of the three attorneys. He gave me permission to share that, who was on that case. And when we were down there on that case, we were, it was a $100 million case we were working up. And so what, what a, a wonderful uh, surprise to hear that you got 120 on this case. Congratulations on your win, by the way. Thank you. So John, tell us a little bit, give us some background. What was this case about? And uh, what were some of the issues? And then we're going to dig into it a little bit. Yeah, so this case was a, um, we, we had a lawsuit against a, it was the third largest driller in the world. And they uh, had, one of their workers was driving from one drilling rig to another drilling rig um, when he fell asleep and came into our lane. Our guy was a passenger and he was killed in that car. And so, and so the big, Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. I was going to say, who, who was involved in the case? So we have a, a wife and... Yeah, so we had a, a his wife and then their four children. The oldest was 26 and then uh, the other, and then his next one was probably 23. And then his uh, third child, uh, she gave the valedictory speech two weeks after he passed away and then he had a 16-year-old. Mm. Wow. So what were some of the issues in the case? So uh, the battle for them, the legal issue was whether he was in the course and scope of his employment. We had two mm. jury questions on that. So that was the, that was the big um, battle. Yeah. Yeah. And so how do you believe that you over, were able to overcome that? Well, I mean, I think he, he, he was working. And so but I, to me, what it was, was really more of a battle of credibility. Of, mm. You know, we were as honest as we possibly could be with the jury and uh, the family that we represented and this man who was an unbelievably honest, good human being. And uh, the company on the other side was not honest in the way they approached things. So it just became a battle of credibility of whether you were with us or you were with them. 
I, I think that's nearly always the case. It's absolutely a battle of credibility. And I want to talk about how you were able to build that credibility in just a minute. Give us a little background on where this took place and COVID and virtual versus in-person. Kind of give us, set us up. Where were you? What, what was going on? So this is uh, in a little West Texas town. has 4,000 people in it. Um, and our... Uh, client, his family, they were from there and just did a lot in the community. It was a very tight knit community. It was, I mean, it was probably an hour and 15 minutes from any place that a hundred thousand people or more. And so a very insular place. Uh, the oil field is, is the lifeblood of this community. One of the first wells in West Texas was there. So that was one of the things that we battled is, um, you know, not to be viewed as an attack on oil. Um, but an attack on bad oil, basically, on companies mm -hmm. that aren't doing it right. And so, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was that. That was the the community of where it was. As far as COVID, uh, we had, and there's a couple of interesting things on that that maybe are a little different. So, we had it in a community building because of COVID, so you could spread out. And in these little towns, you'll have, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have seen it. And so this was it had a different energy because instead of a courtroom where people have gotten divorced or had criminal problems. This was where people had uh, been married and had receptions mm -hmm. and had quinceaneras. And so it was a different energy. Um, and so that was nice. One of the things that was interesting is one of his daughters, when she was on the witness stand, I was talking to her and we had a picture of a daddy daughter date night. And she was telling me uh, the song that they liked to sing to and dance with and it was Van Halen jump and so you could mm -hmm. see him throwing her up in the air and I was like well kind of tell me a little more I was away from the desk and I kind of in the well and she goes well he was standing you know just a little bit back behind you and it dawned on me that that dance was in that that actual spot that he was standing <laughs> within a few feet of me at, wow. the, at the time so so yeah so that was interesting that energy of it being in a different place um as far as COVID, um, we had um, everyone wore a mask, but you could take it off when you talked. And what was interesting, I would say insidious, was, you know, the, there was a big legal team. There was 14 lawyers on the other side and they had jury consultants and, and that kind of thing. And, and one of the defense lawyers in jury selection, he made it a big point to, to tell the jury how much he disliked the mask that we were all wearing. And the judge shut him down and said, hey, this is from the Supreme Court. And the judge talked about how he had lost some family members um, from this. And so, but it was clear he was trying to divide people, right? About, and then he moved on to ask people who, who was vaccinated and who was not vaccinated. And then another attempt to just intentionally divide the panel. Wow. And we were, you know, our goal was to unify everybody, not divide them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy to me. Um, that, that they would be so wanting to, to, to have that happen with the panel. I just, wow, what, what a gift to you. Now you said yeah. there was about 150 in the panel? Yeah, they called, they called 350. Uh, and so I think we were between 100 and 150. So it was a, the whole place was full and everybody was spread out. So it was a little bit of a challenge as far as picking the jury. So to talk, talk me through kind of, and we were talking about this before we got on, but you're changing idea about jury selection and how you wanted to approach it and how you ended up approaching it here. 
Yeah, so when I first started uh, practicing, I was very much, I didn't know the word, but it was an exclusionary uh, jury selection. Um, you know, and I always thought I did a great job, the more challenges for cause I got. And, uh, and, and that went okay, it wasn't bad. And then over time, I really uh, started being more drawn to an inclusionary board uh, or jury selection. And by the time you and I worked together, you were very much on all inclusionary and I was still trying to find a way to mesh those two things. <laughs> and even, you know, a little irritation towards you because I'm sitting here going, that doesn't work that way, sorry. You can't just go all inclusionary, you have to. And in this jury selection, I've just totally shifted and decided, look, I want to do it the way it feels better. And just assume that people were there with good hearts and wanted to do the right thing. Um, and that doesn't mean that there aren't some people that just can't follow the law and they're still good people and that's okay. But in this case, we didn't have any challenges for cause. Yeah, not a single challenge for cause, which I think is incredible. And I do remember we had a terrible first day. I was there for five days with you. And by Friday, he turned to me, you still haven't got me this video, by the way. And you said, I need to do a video for you that says at first you're going to feel, you're going to think this, this woman is, is batshit crazy or something, something you said, <laughs> but she'll get you in the end. So yeah. I'm so glad that that worked out. And I love what you said there, John, about how it felt better. Talk to me about what, how does it feel better to do an inclusionary voir dire? And as, as you know, and as people who follow me know, if we see someone that shouldn't be on our panel, we don't try to get them on the panel. That's not what we mean by inclusionary. What we mean is going in with the idea that there are people here who want to help me and I'm looking for them. And in that process, I might find people that don't want to be here. Great. I'm done. But it's, it's a mindset more than a trying to get people, everybody to be on the panel. How was that feeling better to you? Well, I think, uh, uh, used to, and still there's glimmers of this, uh, given by the fact that I gained 10 pounds during trial preparation. So uh, <laughs> there's still glimmers of fear, but used to, when I would go pick a jury, there was so much fear. And mm. um, and I masked that with anger. Um, so, you know, where I'd be snippy with people on my team or, hey, if you can just do your job, you know, you don't know how much pressure this is. And and I think, uh, you know, the, the idea that perfect love casts out fear of, instead of me being so scared of what's going to happen or how they're going to jack me up or this person or this race or this gender is bad or good or this political preference or whatever. Now it's just looking at that person with genuine love and saying, Hey, you came here and you've been summoned here and you know, you've got some collective wisdom to offer. And, uh, and I love that you're here and I love you for that. And, and to, to not be scared for me, but to want what's good for that person in that moment. Well, and, and even the ones weird. that are, are not, no, doesn't sound weird to me at all. But even the people that are there that, that are not ending up on the jury, either because we don't think they should be there or the other side doesn't, still have something to offer the process, still have yeah. a worldview. We talk all the time in the crew when we're practicing Wadir about how even a bad answer you can use. And, and we did this, John, I remember when we had, remember we, in our first, um, we had three juries over the week and our first jury had that one guy in the corner that was just so bad for us. And yet he was one of the strongest things for the creating the group because yes. every time he kept talking, the rest of the group was like, what? <laughs> like, yes. They just, they, yes. they've gotten more and more of a group. So it's not necessarily that bad jurors are bad. Some, we, sometimes they help form the group. Sometimes they give us great stuff that we can play with. 
So yeah. I love that. I love that. You also said that you had more fun at this trial than probably any other trial. Talk to me about that. Well, it it got so it was so overwhelming um, as far as the, the the amount of resources that the other side had. Uh, you know, they their story was not honest, but it was very. They would shift on a dime. They would create all these new exhibits, and I mean, it was just overwhelming. So used to, I would try to outwork. You know, I'd stay up all night. And finally, I just realized I can't outwork these people. Our team, we have a phenomenal team. And I just played a part in that. And I think that's critical. But um, it was just a realization that, you know, I'm not going to outwork myself through this, you know, and and to just say, you know, I'm going to be in the moment and truth's on our side and love's on our side. And so I don't have anything to be scared of. And so because of that, I got to be much more in the moment. You know? mm. Yeah. Yes. We talk about that all the time. My, I, my goodness, I couldn't script this better. Not that I scripted this. I'm joking. So you, I asked you if you designed with the jury, because you know, the design alliance is a big deal around here. And you said not, not totally, but there was one thing that you did that I just thought was incredible in jury selection when you were talking about um, what they were there to do and, and this whole idea of fair and impartial. Can you share with us, or like you shared with me, what, what you did there? Sure. So when I stood up to begin jury selection, the judge had just mentioned about this idea of we're here to get a fair jury and talked about bias and prejudice. And I stood up and I said, look, uh, yes, we're here to get a fair jury, but our definition of fair and this company's definition of fair are very different. And we represented a local man who's, you know, this guy on at Christmas time, you know, he had four kids and worked full time. He would make these turkey legs and distribute them to all the people, the poorest people in the community. So I told the jury, we are here to find people that share the same values that that Oscar had. And they are here to find people that share a whole different type of value. And that's why our definition of fair is different. I just love that because as you and I were talking about, we don't really want a fair jury we're not going back there and looking at our peremptories and going well this person's a little too biased toward me so they should go because we want a fair jury yeah. <laughs> right yeah. i love putting it in the con in the context of values and it's just like what rick friedman talks about right trial attorneys are fighting for human values versus corporate values yeah. love that that's wonderful so you did uh something that you hadn't done before based on some of the work and some of the podcasts that I uh, that I did that you thought worked really beautifully well, which of course I want to hear about. And so do our listeners. What was that one thing that you used in trial that you thought worked really great? So the, the flip chart or the easel. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, there was something about it that I wanted to try it. I was not totally sold on it or I didn't, not that I wasn't sold on it. I didn't know that it would have this kind of power. And uh, we had a small one and my wife saw it and she said, yeah, let's get a different one. So we got on Amazon and got this thing that was on wheels and it became a part of the trial, a, a, a almost like a person in the trial. And we used, and I'm, I'm not saying this is smart, but in this trial, we use no visuals, no created visuals. So, and I'm not an artist at all. So this easel was it. And so I would, you know, as we would make a point with a witness, I would write on there and in opening, you know, we worked on opening a lot. And so our teaching section, it was so beautiful to be able to turn and actually teach the jury. It allowed me to slow down. I'm naturally very emotional and, and to that. And it, and it enabled me to slow down and not let them 
feel like they were being sold, but more being taught during most of it. And so mm-hmm. it was the whole visual that we used the whole trial. And so anytime we made a point, it was written up there every point. And so when we got to closing, we could come back and say, remember, we learned this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And this. So if, if I would just say, if someone hasn't tried it, try it. It has a, some type of power to it that's very different. Well, and I think you you already pinged on what that is, which is it feels very organic. So it makes you kind of every man, you're like, let me just, you know, let me just show you. Like, let me write this down. Instead of, as you said, the other side had tons of visuals, over, overwhelming amount of visuals, all PowerPoints, I'm assuming, and different yeah. things where this feels very, I'm just teacher guy. I'm just, you know, this is kind of so simple. I can write it for you. Oh, there's a great point. Let me grab that kind of deal. Did it end up going into the jury room with them or did they leave it out in in the courtroom? You know, that was a mistake. I don't know if I would say a mistake. That's something that I thought we could do differently is as we made some of those, almost a summary, you know, to rip it off and put a sticker on it and get the person to acknowledge it and then put it into evidence. So we did not. It it, it stayed with us and uh, then we just used it for closing argument. How did you use it in uh, Wadir? Because you said you started in Wadir with it. So in jury selection, you know, if if there was a, something I was going to talk about or if someone made a point, I, I, would, I believe I wrote a little. I really started it in earnest in uh, opening. Opening mm-hmm. is where I used it the absolute most. And so literally what was the, gonna, they're going to decide later in on the jury charge. And so I began by talking about those concepts, uh, you know, what was happening, where the different rig locations were and numbers and and really teaching there. Uh, I think was the biggest thing. Well, and it's just like the podcast that I had that just came out with the coffee rule, right? If you don't say it at coffee, you're not going to say it at what year, you're not allowed to. It's this formality piece, right? And so what the flip chart also does is it just, it's less formal. You've got 14 lawyers over here with tons and tons of pre-made visuals and you've got, you know, one or two lawyers over here and he's just writing it with the flip chart or markers. It's yeah. such a contrast, particularly into the type of community that you were in and, 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 and the, just the feel of it being very grassroots and, and just honest. I love that. Love that. Um, I do see some questions coming. We will take those here in a little bit. Keep them coming. Whether you're in the Facebook platform, of course, we'll take them in the Zoom platform first from our H2H members. Uh, so talk to me about $120 million. Was that the ask? in this case? Yes. And how did you come to that number? Because I think there are people sitting here thinking, okay, this is basically a car crash case, <laughs> right? I mean, guy, and a guy fell asleep at the wheel, wasn't even malicious. How the heck do we get to 120 million? Talk to me about that. Well, that is, uh, and we explored this a lot about, you know, I think it is, it's a belief of, is that the right number? Um, and for me, it's just a lot of thinking and, and it sounds weird to even say it, but just a lot of internally thinking, does this feel right? Uh, mm-hmm. Not internally thinking, just feeling it. Does yep. it feel right? And um, yeah, and so I knew that it needed to be more than a hundred million dollars and, and it just felt, it just felt like the right number. I wish that I had a better way to say it other than that. I just, I believed that was the right number and um, yeah, I always remember when we had our last mock jury in Midland for the Dram Shop case and you stood in front of the jury because you were handling, we, we did a very interesting because there's three attorneys, one for each vice list in that, in that case, and one would handle kind of like 
the the trial dialogue, right? The the teaching on the story. No, we had one person teaching, one person's story, and the rest person on damages. And you were on damages, John. And you stood in front of the jury and you said, we are asking for a hundred million dollars because quite frankly, I don't have the courage to ask you for what I think it's really worth. Yeah. And that was true. And it was true. And the jury just burst into tears. There were several people crying when you said that. And you were almost at the edge of tears. So when we now get to 120 million, I always say that the number should be something you can own, but a bit of a stretch where you're just like, it's just like, am I really going to go in there and ask for this? But yes, I think it's right. Do you think that's where you hit this number? I've adopted that before. This time I decided to go the other way. I asked for uh, less than what I, mm. I stretched the other way. In other words, mm -hmm. the lowest possible number that I thought was still just. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that was. Did you, did you ask for the number in what year? So I did not, and, and I've done it different ways. And there was part of me that really wanted to do that, but it just didn't feel right. So instead I did it in a wholly different way of I just said at the end of opening after we told our whole story and I said and, and at the end of this we're going to be asking you for at least a hundred million dollars and I just looked at everyone and nobody nobody flinched or anything like that and so I thought that the time to introduce a number that large was after in this case after they knew the story um, mm -hmm. so that's why it felt that way and you know historically people viewed politics of you know Republican, Democratic, you know, that you couldn't get large verdicts in West Texas because of this, you know, it was it's a predominantly Republican place. And um, so that was kind of the old mindset. And I don't, you know, it turns out that Democrats love their children, Republicans love their children, they, we all love, you know, our significant others. So Absolutely. And, and as we saw with the three conservative juries, when I was down there from Craigslist, every single jury asked, can we give more when we asked for a hundred million? Um, and in fact, when we were using the flip chart there, we would put check marks for every drink. We had planned to use glasses had it gone to trial. Um, and we had several jury members say, every time you put a check mark on that flip chart, denoting a drink, I think that we had 43 drinks in two and a half hours. Um, or maybe it was 63, it was something crazy. Um, my verdict went up. There's another place where the, where the, where the flip chart really helped with, with the verdict number. Um, so you had mentioned to me that you said the power is in the invisible. Tell me what you mean by that. Tell, tell our listeners what you mean by that. So this, this case, um, this lady came to my office, uh, in, and at the time she talked about widow brain, she was just, she couldn't really get her hands around what had happened. I mean, she had this wonderful marriage kids were, you know, the last one was close to being out, and you just saw how just destructive this was. I mean, it was like a nuclear weapon went off in their family, and yeah, it was, it was just so much there, and so we got to know her and spend time with her and go to her home and eat dinner with her, and, and just, you know, our the relationship of the team at here, you know, we just all had this wonderful relationship with her so that when we got in court, I was asking her every day and her children, is this a good thing, right? Is this a good thing? Because mm. I can't bring him back. So 
and they weren't destitute. Um, so it was, is this a good thing? And um, and the home that they lived in was across the street from their grandparents. And after the youngest one graduated, they all left and they couldn't go back because this place that was such a source of energy and light and love was just so cold. Uh, I mean, it was so cold. I mean, there was one time when I was there with her and we were walking around, she was showing me the house and different things they did. And when we got to the bedroom, she said, oh, there, there's boxes in here. We, we shouldn't go in there because it's, it's, it's too messy. But it was just so much pain. And, mm -hmm. and so what happened is during the trial for the first time, because they, this is a little town, they moved back in the home and they started to realize that they could still have love, even though he was no longer physically in this world. And they mm -hmm. could have love and their grandparents were there and, and they saw the love from the community willingness to show up. And, 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 and so the, the wife, the mother was, that was a connection. Two of the daughters were fighters like their dad. And so when they saw this contrast of the good and us, us doing the right thing and them doing such dishonest things, it, it was something about that. They all talked about closure. They obviously talked about relief. They just talked about this love and, and, and you could feel it in the room. It was more tangible than, than anything else. Um, and so I think it was that invisible. And so, and you know, the money in this process erupts it so badly, it, it hits all of us, we do it as a living. But it, it was that, what's right for her in this moment that enabled us to turn down so much money while the jury was out, because that the community speaking had a value and it had a value that transcended money. I'm going to share my, I'm going to share my screen. Can y'all see that? Can you see that, John? Yes. All right. So this is the, the, the photo of the family with John and, and the other co-counsel. And tell us, John, when was this taken? So this was taken the morning before uh, closing argument. And okay, so I just want to stop and say before the verdict before the verdict, because we had all, what was interesting is because it was this community deal, we had a trailer, like these, like a travel trailer that we would all meet in during breaks. And that was the way it was done. And everybody to the family, and we all agreed that we had already won, you know, by mm -hmm. fighting the way we had, by loving one another, we had already won. And yeah, they would like to see a verdict that reflected that. But it was this belief that we had already won. And so to internalize that, I wanted to take the picture before closing argument to remember this was the real victory right here. Yeah, the money so, is what, that was the victory. So beautiful. What, if anything, and I'm sure there's some, but what was the biggest learning from the, from hostage to hero or from the podcast that you feel had any part to play in this? I'm, I'm not saying at all that we, I was the only thing playing in this, but what part did From Hostage Hero have to play in this? I mean, it's, I think it is that journey of, of love. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, I don't wanna, I know you don't like the word techniques, but there are techniques, there are things of, you know, like I would ask the jurors, do you want to be on this jury? What do I need to be worried about about you? I hate to use that as a technique, but it is a little bit of a technique, right? Um, but this idea of just totally trusting, you know, mm. just trusting that it's going to be okay, that that 
what that jury verdict doesn't define if we won or we lost. It doesn't. But how deeply we love and how much we pour into this and how much we drive out fear and, and bond and just love the people that we're there to help and, and, and transform ourselves. That's what I take as your ultimate message in what you're trying mm -hmm. to do and to make the world better, you know, and we're going to lose trials. The jury could have gone against us just the same. There's no magic, but I think while I'd have been irritated and not happy for a little bit, I'd still be a better person for having gone on this journey and they can't take away the jury or whoever couldn't take away the fact that, you know, that love and that journey that we all went on together. Yeah. I just love that. I love that. And I love, you know, that you change from trying to over-prepare and put all your energy there and put your energy in loving, loving this family, loving the process, loving the jurors and trusting that it would all work out regardless of how it was. That picture is such a great example of that because I'm sure everybody here today assumed that picture was taken after the $120 million verdict was read. And it's still incredible that we got $120 million for a wrongful death. I mean, it's hard enough to tell the jury, you know, here's this money that's gonna help this person, but here's this money and the person's gone. What do you think was the tipping point before we go to questions, which we will in just a moment, to get them to, to give or allow money in their verdict for someone who's no longer here? I think it's just a mind shift. So once you're past this idea that we're here about, you know, how much money he would have made and that kind of thing, once we're past that point, I mean, the jury charge asked them to award money for the loss of love right mm. well i mean we talked about and you know there's this uh, attorney uh, rex paris that i'd listened to mm -hmm. um rick freeman by the way his book about the way of the trial lawyer huge impact on me uh, yeah. huge impact on me and but anyway rex paris talked about this idea of that what are the diamonds in your life and and so when you start talking about those and you think about every one of those moments really we're really honest, $120 million is not a shocking verdict at all. It's, it's most likely low. I mean, we had people that what they said their diamonds were, were family and faith. Well, they, they destroyed their family. They destroyed everything. And so if the jury really does what they're asked to do, why would five or 10 or 15 or $20 million be fair um, for what was taken from them? I love that. And basing it all on love. And what a great way, instead of going, what are your hobbies, right, to find out and dig in. Because people are like, well, you hate the hobby question. Sorry, but how do you get to damages? That's how you get to damages. Yeah. When, it's, when it's in the voir dire and it's appropriate, and you've already talked about some things, you've got a, a conversation going. In this case, something was taken. Let me ask you about the diamonds in your life. It makes total sense there. Total sense there. And John, I, I've seen you work damages and you're, you're brilliant when in, in both Wadir and an opening in there. So I, I could already know the, the way in which you were being uh, non-verbally in those, in those moments. But we've got some questions. You up for taking some questions? Sure. All right. So first question, uh, would like to hear more about your team and how that was set up and organized. Who had a major impact in this case, but also in my life, that person would have to be Pat Montez. Pat Montez introduced me to the psychodramatic method and really was the person who first got me on the road of seeing things uh, in a different way and really seeing the unseen. 
Pat worked with the family in this case and brought tremendous healing to them. But she's also worked with so many other families and people that have been hurt in my other cases and for so many other people. I believe it would be nothing short of malpractice to try a case like this without uh, visiting with Pat and allowing her to work with the family and more importantly, to work with us. I just can't overemphasize that enough. So one of the attorneys uh, that was involved in this guy named Jeff Beffert and Jeff and I went to law school together and we'd done a lot of cases together and, and he'd gotten somewhat disenchanted with the law practice. Um, And he had called me and said, Hey, John, you know, I don't know if I'm going to keep doing this, but I want to do one more case. Do you have one that you think would be a good journey for us to do? And I thought about it and prayed about it. And this case came about. And once he got involved, he spent probably 80% of his time on nothing but this case. And just in a dogged search for the truth. And, you know, I used to hear lawyers say, well, you don't want to take that one extra depot because what if it's something that's not good for you? I just don't believe that philosophy. I think you search for the truth all the way down. And, and if the truth leads that you shouldn't get a jury verdict, well, then that's okay. And mm-hmm. so the truth he, is the truth. The truth is the truth. Now that's harder when you have hundreds of thousands of dollars, but it's still right, you know, mm-hmm. and we're either on the side of right or we're not. That's right. And, and he, we, he kept ordering records and taking more depositions and pushing me to say, no, we don't know. We never did totally find the truth because they obscured it so badly. But, but his work was just unbelievable. There was another attorney, Chad Elkins, that was a local from that community that helped me really understand. I grew up in a similar town, but not exact. What mattered in that community? What were the values in that community that and he was just integral in that from the beginning of the process all the way through. And um, as far as the attorneys, we had good appellate lawyers uh, that helped us as well. And then our team uh, in, in the, the office, you know, we have just wonderful people. One of the people, her whole goal is she develops stories. She's a storyteller. So she visits with the different people that knew him before. Uh, one of my legal assistants, she actually crafted the closing argument because she, uh, she had a more difficult time getting to why he was working than the rest of us. And so, but eventually she got there. So I thought to myself, well, why not have her write the closing argument instead of me? So that, that way we structured it in a way that got her there. Well, why not do it that way? So she wrote the closing argument. Um, what, what, you know, what, what I'm hearing here is, is the common theme is trust. You trusted yes. your team, you trusted the yes. jury, you trusted yourself. Right. There wasn't this like control and over preparing. And this is what I hear from all of these uh, trial debriefs that we do. People who've gone through the method or I've worked with them. It's like there's a letting go. Yeah. Like when they finally get their verdict, they're like, oh, my God, it was so much easier and so much more fun than I ever made this up to be. And I keep saying this. I keep preaching it in the podcast, but you guys don't get it until you get it. Right. Yeah. When, you, when you get it, then it's like, oh, that's what she's yeah. trying to be telling me this whole time. It's so much and- easier. So I'm hearing this trust here. And people without a law degree, like trust, like my 16-year-old son, he did some work in the summer and found one little thing that was very helpful. I had uh, two people that were in law school, you know, they had great ideas and just, we got as many people and their ideas, different backgrounds, different gender, different races, just all kinds of, in, in that culmination is something that is just far more amazing than when I first started, you know, every trial lawyer, as you know, sorry, has a big ego. And I thought, well, I know how to do this. And so y'all just need to sit there and wait for my wisdom. 
golly, that's just <laughs> terrible, you know? And now that collective wisdom, just like the collective wisdom from the jury, it is just a, it's, it's more fun. And it's, it's like opening Christmas presents, you know? I love it. I love that, my friend. Um, Shelly, a fellow Texan, um, how did you explain the number to the jury or did you? Um, first of all, Shelly is an unbelievable lawyer. and I have. To we know it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I wish I had a way to do that other than that I told them that I believed in my heart that was the right number. I love it. I love it. It's so much more simple because what's the formula? What's the, how am I going to explain it to them? Sometimes just saying, building the credibility with the jury and how do we do that? It's not through gimmicks. It's not through any of that. It's just getting up there and talking and being truthful and honest. And then saying, I believe this is the right number. But, you know, I remember in the dram shop case, and you use this word um, here today too, this idea of journey. We said, in that case, when we tried to explain the hundred million, we said, we've been on a journey with the, these families for the last two years. And through that journey, we believe it was a hundred million, but you're now going to go on a journey and you're going to have to come up with your own number. But that's the number we came up with on our, on our journey. And that just made yeah. sense for them. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love that every answer you're like, I just I felt it. I love it. Um, Shelly's also asking, did you submit any economic damages? We did not. Um, that was uh, one of the only things we lemonade out. Um, they had a lemony that was nine, 95 different things, and we had two. Um, and that was one of the things that we didn't do. Uh, and I don't know how I feel about that. It, it's That's probably more strategic. I just think that and I know a lot of ways talk about anchor points and all that, but I think it's more of a focus of, look, we weren't in that courtroom because, or in that community building because he wasn't earning a living in it. Um, we were there because he lost, they lost their life. And so we didn't, I didn't want to cheapen it by focusing on, you know, did he make this much and blah and all the economists and everything. I just wanted to talk about what was real and, uh, the most important thing so no the answer is no we did not do that i love that it's so real and it's so honest and it's so what i talk about where whatever you talk whatever you focus on you make important period so you were there for love it wasn't yeah. loss of life it was loss of love that's, right. that's what you were there for and that they put a value to what love meant not what even the life meant but what the love the, and the loss of that love what that was going to mean to this family and what it meant to them as a community. Rob is asking, um, can you say more about this whole, what do I need to be worried about piece? When you asked the jury that. Uh, oh yeah. I just, you know, when, when we were talking to them in jury selection, if I got any weird vibe when I was looking at the person, I would say, look, this is real important. And, uh, you know, represent Laura and her kids and we're going to be here for, you know, a week or two. And is there anything in your heart that would make that I should be concerned about putting you on this jury to, to fight for justice? Is there anything that I should be concerned about? And some of them would say, yeah, um, you know, I don't, I don't, they would, they would have problems with the emotional side of it. I don't know if I'm right to sit on this kind of jury or something like that. And then some of them, you get the, seeing their eyes, they were just saying, look, I don't want to sit here because I don't want to be here for 10 days because whatever reason, you could see they wanted off the jury. Um, and I didn't do that with every one of them. Uh, more often than not, it was, do you want to do this? Do you want to be on this jury? And they would say, yeah, I can do this. 
you know, that kind of thing. That, have you ever asked anybody before if they wanted to be on a journey? No, I have not. That, that's totally from, from you. And, and, and I actually thought it was weird even up into doing it that morning. And it just <laughs> came out uh, just emotionally. Like, yeah. why wouldn't I ask you? I'm about to, do you want to do this for 10 days? Do you want to yeah. do this? And what I was really right. saying to them is, are you ready for this fight? Yeah, it's like a rallying call. Yeah, yeah. that was it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. And you had some people say no. Yeah, they say, no, 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 I'm ready to go home. I don't want to do this. Okay, I respect that. Did you get anybody on the jury that didn't want to be there? There was one lady that ended up being on there that didn't want to be on there. There was one lady. Yep. Yep. And that happens. That happens because we don't have full control. Yep. Uh, I don't see any other questions. If there's questions from Facebook, you can um, post those and Christy will grab them. Um, what advice might you have for lawyers who are scared, scared of the jury, scared to trust their instincts, scared, scared to trust their staff? What would you say, John? One of the things I would start with, and it seems like so many of these I listen to, people always come back to this, but I would get Rick Friedman's book uh, on the way of the trial lawyer. And I would really read that and meditate on it because I think that there's so much fear in what we do and mm-hmm. it just stops us from so much good that we can do in the world. And, uh, and look, I had a lot of fear. I mean, I woke up one morning at three in the morning, just literally scared. And I just, you know, for me, I pray a lot and I just, I heard in my mind that the reason I'm so scared is because I don't trust him. And I think that's it. You know, it's mm-hmm. just that it's going to be okay. Even if the jury says you lose. Okay. Well, it's okay. You know, but I think understanding money, money has such a big fear point for us because we've got to, you know, on the one hand, you got to, you know, to have a team and all this stuff and to do these battles, you have to have money, but money can, can dominate us too much. And then we think, well, what happens if we lose? You know, we, we turned down over eight figures on this case while the jury was out. And, and the thought could be, oh my gosh, what if you lose? Blah, 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 blah. And that's what all the adjusters were telling me on the phone from New York. And I said, you know what? If we lose, they've already lost their husband and their dad. So all we're talking about is money. And I think just really understanding that to me is, and working through those fears, there's so many different fears. And I think that Rick Fridman does a really good job in that book. about. And you talk about this constantly, but yeah. it's, I think that's it. Because without that, I mean, you go to all these different vices of overeating. And I did overeat. That's one of the things that, you know, <laughs> but, you know, you yell at people, you drink too much, whatever. You know? Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's it, what I'm hearing you say is it's a mindset shift, which is what yeah. we preach all the time at H2H. <laughs> we don't care how you get there. We, we, we love recruitment. Who, however you get there, we're here to help. But however you get there, we want you to have that mindset shift change. Because notice how John or anyone else, if you've been around here a while, been watching the trial debriefs, are not telling you about all the techniques they've, they've learned. Nearly everybody who comes through says, I shifted my mindset. And that's what made the difference. That's what finally got me over the hump. That's where I finally got my eight figure or nine figure verdict is I finally shifted my mindset. And that's what we keep preaching around here. And I'm so glad that you all come in, not to say how right I am, but that you're having this success. And it's not even about the, the verdict. I, that's what I keep hearing from all of you too. It's like, that, that's great. But this was more fun. I had more enjoyable time. I wasn't so scared. And yeah, of course those moments are gonna come up, right? It's not, then you'd be fearless. 
yeah. courage is doing it and being scared anyway, right? So there's, there's, you have to manage that fear as it comes up. Okay, we've got some more questions coming in. So um, June, our coach June is asking, when you asked if they wanted to be there, did you ask each individual or did you ask the whole group? So I didn't ask the whole group. Partially it was, there were so many and the judge, had, he didn't give us a strict time limit, but he was kind of like, hey, let's go, let's go, let's go. So I didn't, I used it more as a individual route, more of a rallying cries. I didn't think of it until just now, but it was more of that when I would see them and I was like, are you going to fight for justice? Kind of a yeah. person. Are you ready? Let's yeah. go. Are you ready to do this? It was more of that. I love it. Uh, when did you first realize that the group had been formed and what was it that you did to, to facilitate that forming other than your amazing personality, of course? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the, uh, I really think the group started to form with the, the first question that we asked because I could feel that they saw that I wasn't BSing. You know, I wasn't coming up in Baja and kind of doing some jokey joke or flirting with them or whatever you see. Lawyers. Yeah. You see that. <laughs> you know, it's just look, hey, I'm not gonna waste your time. Let's just get to this. And and one of the things we got to then it really started to form the group is their witnesses had several of them just, I mean, I always nervous about saying lying, but they just didn't tell the truth under oath. And so when I started asking people, you know, some people say, hey, when I put my hand and I swear to God, that that really means people. Other people say, eh, well, you do your best. And, you know, if you kind of fudge, you fudge. And that really is when the, the group started, I think, coalescing, because they're like, no, when you put your hand, I swear to God, you better tell the truth. None of this kind of fudging around. Love it. Um, did you handle trial negotiations or have someone else do that? It's so distracting in trial. Yeah, I, I have heard of people doing that. And I think if you could detach it and have someone else do it, it'd probably be better. But I did it. And it was good for me because it just made me constantly say, what are we doing? Am I doing this out of my own ego? Am I doing this out of my own greed? Am I doing it out of my own fear? So mm. I did the negotiations during it. And I found it to be very, uh, it was a cathartic process for me. Yeah, very grounding, it sounds yeah. like, like just kind of coming back to your touch points, your yeah. touchstone. Um, how did the judge handle uh, the other side asking about vaccination status? He was very stern about it um, mm. because he had just warned him because the guy did the mask trying to connect with not wearing a mask. And mm -hmm. so he shut him down on that. And then his, and then right after that, he threw his hand up about vaccination. And the judge said, no, we're not doing this. This case is not about who's vaccinated. And so I think that while I know what he was trying to do, he was trying to really divide. And if he could have just got a few people that really connected with him, but instead, I think he lost a lot of credibility because mm -hmm. people know that's an extremely personal decision and it cuts through all kinds of things. And, um, and, and it felt very, um, very much what it was. It, it was pretty transparent. It was a good thing, but obviously some jury consult, somebody's told him that was a good idea. Yeah, somebody. So we may start just, seeing more of that. Right. Well, especially as we talk so much about forming the group, you know, the defense may be like, well, look, how can we throw a grenade in there? That's and right. uh, I think it's going to backfire on them, yeah. quite frankly. So let them try it. Um, you're getting a lot of love in the Facebook group right now from your Texas people, Christy or Chrissy Castles and back there, Robert Killenberg, Killenberg. Ricky Brantley, I'm sorry, I'm just absolutely murdering those names, all sending you love from over there. 
Um, I just want to thank you, John, for for first hiring me way back when and having that dram shop case. I just keep talking about it. now we can keep talking about this case. And I'm just so, so grateful for for your support of my work, but also for your transformation. I just I just can't. I just, it did bring me such joy to see you in this position again, not about the verdict, but where you are standing right now in this place of love and, and love for your client, love for yourself, love for the process. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And um, yeah, and uh, you know, there were so many lawyers and you and just a lot of people that reached out after this and, and you realize that, you know, I think that's one of the things on this side of the docket is we are in it together, you know, and, mm -hmm. and you, you realize there's a lot of people that, that care and, and want us all to do well. And yeah, it's, it's so much better than being on the other side of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, good to see you, my friend. Okay. Love to reconnect and uh, go enjoy your success. And thanks for being here. All right. Y'all take care. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining me today. If you benefited from what we talked about or just want to let me know you enjoy the podcast, go ahead and leave me a review on whichever platform you use to listen to From Hostage to Hero. Add a comment and I just might give you a shout out on an upcoming episode. In the meantime, head over to FromHostageToHero.com to order your copy of my book, From Hostage to Hero, Captivate the Jury by Setting Them Free. And to get on my mailing list, I send out trial tips and encouragement right to your inbox every single week. And while you're there, make sure you join the waitlist to become an H2H crew member when we reopen. We only open a few times each year and you do not want to miss out. I look forward to our time together in next week's episode. Talk then.